Great. Please be seated, everybody. It's general election season, friends. And as part of our commitment to engage, our mandate to be involved, uh, we've invited the parliamentary candidates to come and share in conversation with us over these weeks. We're delighted this morning that Ben Gummer, our current MP, is with us. Would you give a Burlington welcome to Mr. Gummer? Yourself comfy. Uh, your enthusiasm to. for the. <laughs> <laughs> this election moment. We hope you do. We hope Happy you're buzzing. Yeah. We hope you're on fire. So, you've been an MP in Ipswich since 2010. Uh, tell us what you think are the key accomplishments, but perhaps more important, what are the values that are underneath that? What's been driving you over these last uh, uh, six, seven years? Uh, well, it's only. It's only been two years since I was here last. Thank you, as ever, for welcoming me here. And I'm sorry I couldn't be here for the whole service and to hear your uh, sermon, which I always uh, enjoy. But you actually, can get it online, Ben. It's all right. That It'll is true. We'll, I'll mail it to you. You won't miss that. out. There's no need. I have actually <clears> watched <throat> you online. But I will do so because uh, yeah, I was a, just for your interest, but it was a really interesting um, thing I did before I came here was go to see a friend of mine who is celebrating his golden jubilee. Is that 50 years? Mm-hmm. As a, as a vicar wow. in St. Bartholomew's. And he doesn't look very old, but it's amazing to have done 50 years. I suppose that's a, a segue into the thing which I have learned. Why did I want to do this originally? It was because uh, I believe in public service. Uh, I have been given enormous privilege in my life and I'm blessed with talents. And I think uh, I, I worked out in my 20s, I didn't particularly like making money or didn't find it very interesting. And so I wanted to do this, and I wanted to represent somewhere I cared about. But uh, it's not something you kind of... uh, It's like any service in life, isn't it? It's something you rediscover through doing it, and sometimes it's quite tough. And uh, uh, the last seven years have been the most remarkable journey for me. And sometimes it has been difficult, but sometimes it's actually also very... Almost all the time, it is immensely rewarding. And I suppose the key value I try to bring... Uh, sometimes not always successfully, but is what, is, what can I do which is most uh, at the service of the people that I, uh, I, that I look after? And that sometimes requires balances, judgment, compromises, mm. um, because you can never make perfect decisions uh, in every single circumstance. So I hope that's the main value that, I have, that I've brought. And just to give people a, a bit of context that perhaps they don't know a, a bit about you, just give us a, a little inkling on, on faith, um, belief. Where, where, where are you on the faith-belief spectrum? Uh, well, you, you, know, you and I, have, um, well, and with your family, we've had this discussion quite a few times. I, uh, I was brought up as a, uh, a practicing uh, Christian. I was a chorister when I was little, which has a kind of a profound impact on you when mm. you're um, through your life, actually, uh, because it... It, it, it imbues you with the language of the prayer book and it, it kind of sits with you. And I still find myself when I'm writing my weekly article, it's so interesting how those cadences fall so easily into your mind. Um, and then I went through a long period actually of, of, uh, of doubt and of questioning. And like so many people, I suspect the experience of having children mm-hmm. has made me aware of the miraculous in a way that I had not expected. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself... Um, not as a chore, but as an act of willing, going back to church on a regular basis. Um, and it's become much more important to me in the last few years. And 
I'm very happy about that. It wasn't something I'd expected. And over these last um, um, years, there'll be moments when there was compromise. There'll probably be moments when you think, actually, this just hasn't turned out the way that I, I wanted it to. Um, if you read Facebook and Twitter, people are very cruel. So you've got to have really thick skin to be in public life. Um, but, but there must be moments when you think, oh, this just didn't work out. Yeah, I don't, I, actually, I never really mind about that because, because my father was a politician. The hardest thing in your life, I, I think, as a child is to see your parents traduced. Mm, mm. Once you've gone through that, and it was difficult, and actually meant that I hated politics, so there's a lot of... I mean, if I were to have a therapist, <clears throat> he or she would have a field day with We can me. help with that. <laughs> um, I, uh, I don't mind people having got me because, you know, you develop... once. I, I, it still hurts a great deal when I see people being unpleasant about my parents, my mm. father, but mm. um, it's given me a, a very, very kind of strong inoculation, people being tough against me. But it does make a difference, of course, to my family in of the course. same way it does, it did to me, which is partly why I wanted to do this when I was young, because I think I want the choice and the option to be able to leave before my children are a bit older. For mm, sure. So let's, let's dig in with some issues, though. Obviously, the, the big issue surrounding this election is Brexit, so we'll start there. Uh, Ipswich... Uh, overwhelmingly voted to leave, significantly higher than the national majority. What was Ipswich saying when it voted to leave? And can a party that wanted to stay in Europe actually deliver on whatever Ipswich was, uh, was asking for when we voted to get out? Yeah, well, this is the most interesting question um, in politics at the moment, and it's one that is uh, asked in different ways in Western democracies around the world. And, uh, you know, I was a passionate Remainer. Uh, I felt actually a sense of grief afterwards, if I'm honest. I mean, not because, not because I was angry about it. I wasn't angry about it. I just felt very sad because I believed in the ideals of, mm. of uh, European fraternity. But what I realized also towards the end of my time canvassing and knocking on doors was that people were saying something profound, which I had missed. And it made me quite cross of myself that I'd not kind of I'd not judged this correctly before. And not that it would have changed my view about what I would have asked people to do because... Uh, by a significant margin, my constituents roundly rejected my advice about how to vote. <laughs> um, but I had missed—I had missed a dislocation, which, although I knew was happening, I had kind of—I uh, think probably failed to understand how it should be corrected, if you can correct it. And I think the central insight of the Prime Minister has been to say, "Look, this is not just about Europe," and it's something that I felt very much during the last weeks of the campaign. That was a proxy in many ways for people fed up with... Even though uh, we're much more connected as a world than ever before, people feeling that power was slipping from their hands and they were subject to forces which were beyond their control. Mm. And that their democratic institutions were not willing to stand up and say, we are going to fight for you on these matters. And that's why uh, Theresa May's uh, focus on things... You know, it can be as relatively small in terms of global issues as people's household electricity bills, but which is effectively facing up to big companies on the one hand, and on the other to say, how do we get the best deal for people, for this country in Europe, in the way that we negotiate our new relationship with them so that we can protect and enhance prosperity and jobs. But isn't that, isn't that part of the problem, that uh, given that in your heart you think it's a bad idea, aren't you there for the wrong people to send to the table? to negotiate it on our behalf, because fundamentally you don't really believe in it. I don't, I don't accept that, actually, because I think that discussion ceased on the 24th of June last year. I mean, for me, membership of the European Union is not something that really uh, interests me anymore, because the public have made a decision. So I have one imperative. I mean, it kind of gets back to this point about 
public service, which is uh, people have made a decision. My job now is to make sure we get the best possible deal. So I don't wake up in the morning and think anymore, I want to be a member of the European Union. It's just not even an interesting discussion and not one that I have in my head because I don't think you can keep on asking a question that's been decided. So the key thing is to make sure we get a really great deal um, that maintains the best things that we got out of European close working, uh, largely economic security and security cooperation. And, uh, and I think we can do it. It will be hard, but we can do it. The landscape around <clears throat> Ipswich and uh, around here in particular has significantly changed with a number of immigrants uh, rising it would appear dramatically. We play football in Portman Road, some of us here, every Tuesday, and uh, lots of nationalities are gathering. So given the change of that landscape, is that a good thing for Ipswich? I do... Well, I think that this country has been immeasurably improved by the new communities that have come here. And where this becomes such a difficult discussion for all of us, and it's the same for church leaders who struggle to find a, a way of describing... Um, how we as communities should evolve is that there is always going to be a, a, a balance between uh, change which is too fast or too slow um, and looking after people who are in need if they're coming here in, for reasons of asylum and also the, the, the facts of a changing global economy and people moving around the world in a way that they never used to. And what I have to accept as a member of parliament and representing this community is that you know, it's no good just sitting there and banging people over the head and saying, you're wrong, this is the kind of society that we want. That is a, that is a very destructive way to lead your community. And you need to bring people with you. And there has been far too much in the last 20, 30 years, I think, of telling people what they should feel like and what they should be like. And consequently, people have become very divorced from their leaders because they feel kind of lectured about their own lives. And I was conscious of this... Uh, and I have been conscious of it for some time. Uh, and that's why I've been one of the few conservatives, especially centre-ground, mainstream conservatives, who's been willing to talk about immigration. Because actually I think that most people enjoy a lot of what immigration brings, but they also don't want their communities to change so quickly out of mm. recognition that they feel dislocated. Mm. So is the policy working, the current policy? Well, it's not working in the sense that we don't have control on our, uh, of our immigration in the way that we should. And the result is, is that... We are now seeing numbers of people coming here, uh, a quarter of a million people a year, which is unprecedented in our history. If you go back to the 1990s, 1980s, you're talking about mid-tens of thousands. And that has an impact on communities. You can't just kind of say it doesn't. And we need to recognise that, because otherwise the social dislocation that happens, the existing communities are here, which, by the way, also includes people who arrived here in the 1960s and 1970s, can be very severe. And when people struggle to be able to keep their wages high, to be able to find a home, to be able to use medical facilities because of the effect that immigration can have, although much of it that's attributed to it is, uh, is for other reasons, um, then that can have a deleterious effect and change social cohesion. And that's one of these very careful balances that none of us will know what is right until I should think generations mm. hence. And you're making mm. difficult decisions which you can't be entirely secure uh, in the rightness of exactly the point at which you're picking. You just have to f try and feel your way. Sure, and you mentioned the, the most vulnerable and so on. So can we, can we talk about um, the Lord Dubbs Amendment just for uh, a moment? Uh, you've probably talked about this uh, till uh, the cows come home, but it's important to, to some of us, I think, 
that there, there are, well, Lord Dubbs was arguing himself that a child refugee, as we know, fleeing from, from the Nazis, was asking the UK to accept 3,000 children that have already been dislocated from their homes, already dislocated from Syria, and you voted with the government to say no. Um, I think many of us feel, like Archbishop articulated, kind of shocked and dismayed by that. Help us uh, understand some of that, some of that decision. It was a very difficult... Uh, actually, I didn't find that a particularly difficult decision to make for reasons I'll explain in a second. Um, but it was very difficult politically because it, it, it's one of those decisions where it would have been so easy to take an opposing point and people would have said, well, that's you know, an obvious decision to make. Instead, people go, why did you do that? That is a, a cruel thing to do um, without understanding the reasons why the decision was made. Uh, and it's one of those things that tests you as a politician because if you know you're doing the right thing, um, it can often make you unpopular for doing so. And the reason why is very simple, which is that, and I, you know, I know Alf Dubs fairly well, but we were on the Organisation for Security and Cooperation for Europe um, board together and went and did a kind of a rather odd trip to Serbia, which I remember for a long time with him. Um, it's that the advice that we were receiving, which was incredibly strong, from the French authorities especially, but from other humanitarian relief organizations concerned with the migration of refugees around Europe, is that an extension of, a significant extension of allowing refugees into the UK um, risked, or didn't just risk, would exacerbate the migration and trafficking of children especially across the continent. And there is very, very strong evidence that even the small number that we, uh, that we did accept in created that pool uh, even at the point at which it was being decided. So you are creating a magnet which doesn't actually solve the problem. It creates a bigger problem than the one that you had accepted. And that is why we judged that to put what is the second largest contribution of any nation in the world after the United States into refugee help closer to uh, Syria uh, and making sure that we were bringing out of Syria some of the most vulnerable refugees who were largely people who were disabled or women who had been abused and raped during the conflict, some of whom are now being looked after in our community here in Ipswich, mm. was a better way of helping the most vulnerable people with the resources that we had. Uh, and I think that is the right decision to make. And it's one of those classic ones where it would have been easier to have done something which would have signalled your virtue rather than actually doing the right decision. And I know that that is a difficult thing to for some people to understand. And, and it, it was impossible, seemingly, to uh, crack down on trafficking and support these children. Well, we, all the children who were in the camps, and I know there's some dispute about it, but as far mm. as our border officials are able to determine, were received into the UK. So in the, the, the amended Dubs Amendment, um, the biggest thing we can do to stop human trafficking is to, is to stop the reason why the human traffickers make money mm. out of it. Uh, you can put as many ships into the Mediterranean as you like. But the thing which really stops it in the end, uh, like hostage-taking, is take away the monetary incentive. These are very cruel people. Mm. And they're not interested in the... Um, you know, they'll take high risk because the rewards are considerable. Yeah. Okay, let's move on into somewhere else, somewhere a bit nearer to home. I think you don't have to be in social sciences uh, to realise that there's kind of a mental health epidemic in our country. Uh, and, and in response to that, uh, Theresa May, a couple of weeks ago, 
said that if she was re-elected, the current Mental Health uh, Act is unfit for purpose and that there will be the biggest shake-up in 30 years. And I think one of the promises was around 10,000 NHS staff members being redeployed into uh, areas of mental health. Given that it it looks from the outside into us that all the NHS departments are are really stretched for staff, if we take 10,000 out of those places into mental health, then won't we leave those departments needing mental health support themselves? Where's the 10,000 coming from? How does that play out? Well, there are 1.3 million people working in the NHS. Um, It is an enormous organisation. And uh, I think most people working in the NHS will tell you that it is not always the most brilliant organisation at deploying its resources efficiently. And what we're trying to say in this is that we need to get a proper change of emphasis so that although we have legislated in the last parliament, and proud to have done so, to create parity of esteem for mental health, we now need to make that live. And that means actually changing the way that resources are deployed in the health service. And there are many people who deal with the physical outcomes as a result of mental health problems uh, who uh, can be better deployed in trying to uh, deal with mental health issues themselves. And the reason we've got this problem is that we have not been training enough therapists for decades now. And so we need to do something quite radical to get people uh, the help that they need. And if we wait for the current increase in trainees in the health service to come through the system, we're going to be waiting four, five, six, seven, eight years. And that's why we need to do some redeployment within the service. You're right that, of course, um, the demand is increasing considerably, Mm. and that's why we're promising uh, an increase of £8 billion, but also, importantly for me, an increase, uh, uh, an additional £10 billion in capital expenditure, which will be the largest amount spent on buildings and kit in the history of the NHS. And together, uh, this is the biggest injection of cash of all the main parties who are offering uh, their, their stalls at this election. And that is important because we need to be able to give the NHS the resources it requires. We keep, um, obviously, mental health affects uh, people right across the, the, the spectrum of society. We obviously uh, come into contact with lots of vulnerable people that are trying to access the benefit system. Uh, food banks have increased over the last seven years, uh, and it, it's estimated that almost half of those going to the food banks in need is because their, their benefits have changed or they can't work out the new system. Something's gone adrift in the benefit system, uh, and uh, uh, PIP, personal independence payments, uh, two-thirds of those, uh, apparently on appeal, uh, are therefore successful. So it, it seems like the vulnerable are struggling to get the benefits that they should get, or at least there's a significant delay in them getting what the government rightfully says is theirs. It, it, how might that get shaken up? What, what might we see around the benefit system in the future? So on, on food banks, there are two points to be made. The first is, is that we, we made a change in 2010, which was that before 2010, job centres were banned from referring people to food banks. And the reason they were banned was purely political because they did not want the stories that have now emerged around food banks. Now, we changed the rule. We deliberately signpost people now to food banks. It has meant that we have taken some political heat. Uh, There are other reasons other than that, so I'm not pretending that's the entire reason, but there is also a deliberate policy here to make sure if people find themselves in in dire straits, uh, that we are giving them the ability to know where to find help in the short term. There is a, a problem with universal credit, which we are attempting to address at the moment, and not just with universal credit, with all benefits, which is that they are not paid quickly enough when people go to, mm-hmm. go to claim. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because we're dealing with incredibly old computer systems, much of it designed in the late 1970s and early 80s, and they are really inefficient. And the aim with universal credit is that we can pay people very quickly. Uh, 
we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. So the bit that we've got to do to try and help is to get a far more seamless service from universal credit. And I think that if we were to have this discussion in four or five years' time, uh, you will see the benefit of that because it's one of the areas I'm responsible for is the IT delivery of this system. And we are, we're seized of the need to make this work. Um, on personal independence payment, you're right, that was the figure, but it's now um, reducing. We've, there were problems with the assessment. We've changed the people doing the assessment of sickness benefits as a whole. And uh, the result is that actually more people going for their PIP assessments are seeing an increase in their benefits than those who are seeing them cut. I think most people recognize that disability living allowance needed to be reformed. Uh, but it, this is not a cost-cutting exercise because the amount charged to government and therefore to you is going up. Uh, the amount spent on disability benefits is increasing quite significantly. Um, we hope that through PIP, you know, there's still more we can do to make mm. it better, it is better targeted at those people uh, who need the most help. Tim Farron was uh, hounded for his Christian view. Should we be worried about expressing our Christian views? Uh, no, you shouldn't be worried at all. Um, I, uh, the thing that disappointed me about him was that... <laughs> I'm not just saying this because it's Tim Farron. I mean, I've, you know, I've got... We've had this discussion lots of times. I've got lots of people who I admire uh, across the political spectrum. Uh, but I thought once you've made your position clear, then to kind of back away from it because you come under fire is a rather odd uh, place to be. So I, But it might I, illustrate the amount of pressure he was under. I, uh, he was under considerable I, I pressure. I don't know Tim Farron at all, like, looking in as an observer. Yeah, well, if he believes mm. it, he should say it. I mean, people are very... Let's let's move the same conversation on a little bit. You and I have had correspondence about Ofsted for Sunday schools and that kind of um, protection against extremism. Should we be ever worried that what we might teach as traditional Christian values comes under threat or government control? No. And, you know, we managed to get what were going to be uh, poorly designed rules to see how people who are being looked after in in, in Sunday schools uh, changed. And that was the right thing to do. I mean, just to kind of reflect on your main point, I think it is absolutely essential to the health of this nation, the, the moral and spiritual health of this nation, that the church does not feel restrained, and Christian people do not feel restrained from saying what they believe. And I, you know, I will always be... I've got some views which we've disagreed about before. I voted in favour of same-sex marriage because I don't believe it's the state's role to define uh, uh, marriage. I actually think this is a sacrament conferred by the church and I you know if, if that's what you decide your marriage is going to be mm. and therefore for the church to have different rules from the state I find completely acceptable but I don't feel that me as a representative can make that decision um, and that is something that other Christian people have found difficult in my response to that but uh, that doesn't take away from the fact that I think they should have the freedom to be able to speak very loudly about their views as long as they do so temperately and and with consideration of the people they're talking to uh, as with anyone Hmm. In, in two sentences, tell us why Theresa May is the, the rightful next Prime Minister. Well, I have the privilege of working with her every day, so I don't... Uh, I, I see a side of her uh, which... This is not two sentences, is it? Um, I, I see a side of her which most people uh, don't, but that just tells you something which is why she's popular, which is actually, in private, she's exactly like she is in public. And she is a very principled person, and I've never once had a discussion with her where she says, what is the politics of this? Hmm. You present the evidence, and she says, and she makes a decision on what is the right thing to do. Now, some people disagree with whether it is the right thing to do, but all I can say is that her motivation, as far as I've ever seen it, has not been, um, you know, what is the, what focus group can we turn by 
by doing it this way or that. Great, we're nearly there. We're running out of time. I want to think about Ipswich. It's June the 9th. Uh, you're still our MP, hypothetically. Uh, what, what should we look forward to over the next few years in Ipswich itself? Well, I'm actually, I'm not your MP at the moment. It's a bizarre period where it's all, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I think that this could be the most exciting period in Ipswich's history, actually. I mean, it's had some great periods in the past, but it's one of those towns that's gone like this. Uh, But we have a real opportunity to make a huge thing of this town because we are ideally suited, uh, situated, we're in the middle of this golden triangle between some of the biggest areas of research and development in the world. Uh, We are blessed in our quality of life here and uh, I think we can really lever those strengths to give sustainable prosperity to people who are living here and I want to get to a position where young people especially don't feel that they've got to move away to have the opportunities they would otherwise expect to have and that is why I'm so keen to see investment here to continue the hundreds of millions of pounds worth which is coming in every year now um, as a result of things that I've worked on with other people. I mean, this is not a solitary effort. It's been lucky that there have been a lot of people in this town who want to make change happen. It won't happen in six months, 12 months, but I think in five years' time, just as now, if you look now back five years, see the distance we've come in many things, in five years' time, that will have been compounded, and people will think, actually, this place has really improved. And the outside world is spotting this. It's partly why your house prices are going up. But that's not the reason to do it. (laughs) (laughs) We'd love to pray with you. Thank you ever so much. Father, we're just asking for uh, all those who serve in our public life. We pray for uh, Ben. We pray that you'd give him wisdom and insight. We pray you'd give him buckets of compassion and mercy. Fan into flame every good thing to which he puts his hand. Fan into flame every good thing that he's put his hand to over this last term of office, we pray. And may he know, and may everyone who serves us in public life know that as your people will encourage and cheer on every good endeavor. And so we thank you for people willing to serve in Jesus' name. Amen. Ben, thank you ever so much. Thank you so much.